Take your Bibles and open them up to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. If you have one of our uh, CSB Bibles from either side of the room, you can find that on page 1094. And you're free to keep that Bible if you don't have one of your own. It, It gives us great joy to get the Word of God into your hands because it's God's Word that does the work. Again, like we just prayed about, the Spirit and the Word work together to transform the hearts of God's people and to transform the hearts of sinners to make them God's people. And so uh, that's the most important thing that you can be looking at and listening to this morning, okay? And so I want to make sure that that's in your hands as we go through this. If you're joining us for the first time today, we're continuing our uh, sermon series through the book of Revelation. If you've missed our, uh, some of our previous sermons, you're welcome to go back to our website and listen to those or by searching out Redeemer Manunk on uh, the Apple Podcast app. Last week, a uh, friend and brother of mine, John Watts, Uh, took us through the seven seals on the scroll. And this morning, we're going to look at the seven trumpets together. We're going to start in verse 6 of chapter 8 and work our way to the end of chapter 11. And all of a sudden, now you're like, wait, what? Hold up. That's a lot of chapters. That's a lot of text, right, to cover in one sermon. But these chapters, they make up another whole literary unit in the book of Revelation. And it makes the most sense for us to look at all seven trumpets together just like we looked at all seven seals together last week for a couple reasons, okay? One, because the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are all referring to the same time events from different angles and the same time frame between Christ's resurrection and his return. We're going to see a lot of repetition. uh, This morning, about 2 a.m., all of our clocks turned backwards an hour, and we got to have 2 a.m. for a second time, right? Right? The seven trumpets, if you will, are kind of like turning the clock back and going back through the same time frame that we just went through with the seven seals, okay? Now, John unpacked a whole bunch of stuff with the seals for us last week. We don't need to spend a lot of time unpacking things this week that were already unpacked for us last week. And so, again, we're going we're gonna to sort of uh, cover this, this chunk uh, somewhat quickly this morning. Reason number two, keeping this entire literary unit intact will help us see the pattern that emerges in all three judgment sequences, the seven seals, the seven judgments, or uh, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. And this pattern will help uh, uh, us stay focused on the main things that are being revealed in these sequences. Because this is apocalyptic writing, the temptation for us can be to, to look at, uh, 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 at every little symbol and try to decipher what that little thing means, okay? But we don't want to miss the forest for the trees here. We, we, we need to look at this or think about this as more like a mosaic. We need to stand close enough to it that we can see the, the things that are making up the bigger picture, but far enough away that we, we can actually see what the bigger picture is doing, okay? And so that's why we're going to treat this as a whole unit this morning, because we need to keep that bigger picture in mind. And even though the seven trumpets repeat the same events and time frame as the seven seals, that doesn't just mean we're like, okay, well, we did the seals so we can you know, skip over the, the trumpets and the bowls. We don't need to cover those things. No, we can't do that. Because like a replay camera, we talked about this before, the trumpets are taking those same events, that same time frame, and turning the angle so that we can see something in a different light. Which means... These are just as important as the seals and the bowls. It's giving us a different perspective. Last week, the camera was focused on the faithful endurance 
of believers under the protection of God in the, faith, in, in the face of trials, okay? The faithful endurance of believers under the protection of God in the face of trials. Today, the camera is focused on the hard-heartedness of unbelievers under the punishment of God in the face of judgments. The hard-heartedness of believers under the punishment of God, or of, of unbelievers, excuse me, under the punishment of God in the face of judgments. Now, back in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 6, the faithful witnesses cried out to God, wondering how long it would be until he vindicated them by judging their persecutors. The beginning of chapter 8 shows us that these seven trumpets are God's answer to that, how he's going to begin to answer that and how he will bring that answer to its full conclusion. And like we saw last week between the sixth and seventh seal, here's the pattern, okay? Between the sixth and seventh trumpet, we're going to see another interlude, if you will, a new vision that John gets. And this is going to provide a picture of the church in the midst of the judgments that are being revealed. So God has something to say to unbelievers this morning, and he has something to say to the church this morning through these seven trumpets. We don't have time to cover everything in uh, chapters 8 through 11 in detail. Chances are that when we're done, you're going to be left with some unanswered questions, okay? That's a good thing because as long as we understand the main things that we need to get from here. Listen, we don't just close this book when we're done on Sunday and wait till next Sunday. You can go back together and look through these with, a, with a, an already framework understanding of what's going on here. So, I want to encourage you, if you have questions, uh, we can talk about it later or whatever. Write those down, but let's stay focused on the, uh, let's back up enough to see the, the mosaic for what it is, okay? So I want to pray because I need help this morning. Father, we love you. We're thankful that your word is true, that you're faithful, that you're good. And we pray, Lord, that as your word goes out of my mouth this morning, that it would accomplish your purposes. That the lost would be found, that the found would be encouraged, that Christ would be glorified, and that we would rejoice together yet again in the majesty of our good and gracious King. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you probably didn't get up at 2 a.m. to turn your clocks back an hour but I'm guessing that you still set an alarm clock this morning to get out of bed on time, right? Uh, but maybe you're familiar with the snooze button. Anybody? Nobody's going to raise their hand. Listen, when that alarm goes off, right, you, you tap that button and you roll over for a few more minutes of sleep until the alarm goes off again. But here's the thing. When you hit the snooze button the first time, it gets easier and easier to hit it a second time and a third time, and a fourth time, until the alarm goes off again, and you realize, oh my goodness, I'm late. It's too late, right? It's, isn't it interesting that we call it an alarm, and yet we treat it as something that's optional to pay attention to? An alarm serves as a warning signal. In this case, it's warning you that it's time to wake up, right, so that you can be prepared for the day. In the Old Testament, Trumpets served as alarms to get the attention of God's people and prepare them either for battle or for worship. 
And in the book of Revelation, the seven trumpets that we're about to look at are doing something similar, but on a much, much broader scale. They're meant to get the attention of believers and unbelievers alike. And just like we saw with the seven seals, and we'll see with the seven bowls, these seven trumpets are showing us acts of judgment that God is carrying out in the world from the time of Christ's resurrection to the time of his return. But, but here's the thing. When it comes to these judgments, we all have this tendency to hit the snooze button and sort of ignore the alarm. We look at the world around us and we almost just treat the things that are going on as if they're just sort of arbitrary. But these trumpets we're going to see cannot be ignored Seven trumpet judgments echo both the plagues in Egypt from the book of Exodus and the seven trumpets that the priests blew during the battle of Jericho in the book of Joshua, chapter 6. In both of those historical events, the plagues and the trumpets were used by God to judge his enemies and to deliver his people. And in both cases, God, uh, God's people served as witnesses of his righteous judgment and ultimately worshipped him for his justice to punish their enemies, his enemies, and deliver his people. We're going to see something similar here in these seven trumpet judgments. So here's the main point. This is the picture of the mosaic, if you will, as we go through this. The right now judgments of God, that is the, the judgments that are taking place in the world. John called them the little J judgments last week. Instead of the big J judgment in, the, in the, the final day, right? The right now judgments of God trumpet his victory over his enemies and his vindication of his people. The right now judgments of God trumpet his victory over his enemies and the vindication of his people. And they do that because they ultimately trumpet the final judgment of God. This morning, we're going to hear the righteous judgment of God trumpeted through three things. The misery of, God, of Christ's enemies, the mission of Christ's church, and the majesty of Christ's kingdom. The, the, the misery of Christ's enemies, the mission of Christ's church, and the majesty of Christ's kingdom. We're going to start with the, the misery of Christ's enemies. And for the sake of time, we're not going to read through these first four trumpets, but here's what we need to understand about them, okay? Starting in chapter 8, verse 6, the seven uh, uh, angels prepared to blow their trumpets, and then we get all these first four trumpets. You can read those later uh, with each other this afternoon or this week. Here's what we need to understand about these, these first four trumpets. They represent physical judgments from God on every part of the world. You'll notice land and sea and rivers and the heavens. They describe plagues like the ones that God brought upon Egypt in the book of Exodus. And even though their scope covers the whole world, their effect is limited. We saw that last week as well with the seven seals. But notice here that everything is referenced in thirds instead of fourths, which means that the, the, uh, the judgments are intensifying with the trumpets. We're getting an intensified picture of God's judgments between this time of Christ's resurrection and his return. When God sent the plagues on Egypt, it wasn't just to force Pharaoh to let God's people go. It also was an indictment against Pharaoh and Egypt and a judgment on the Egyptians for their reliance, their idolatry, their reliance on false gods. Every plague that God uh, gave to Egypt revealed God's power 
over a different false god that the Egyptians worshipped. The same thing is happening here with these first four trumpets. Everything that the unbelieving world relies on for security and satisfaction is being undercut by God here in these judgments. The point of these judgments is to show that the very things that people look to in this world to give them life ultimately end up bringing them to ruin. Don't we see that all over the New Testament? And really the Old Testament? Isn't that been the story since the garden? These are judgments against unbelievers because of their idolatry, just like the plagues against Egypt. The first trumpet shows that those people who rely on nature to provide for them will end up in spiritual famine. The second trumpet shows that people who rely on world powers and governments for security will end up being destroyed by them. Mountains in the book of Revelation are, are almost always used to, uh, as a symbol for kingdoms and world powers. The third, third trumpet shows that people who rely on sinful things for satisfaction will ultimately be poisoned by those things. And the fourth trumpet shows that people who rely on the worldly wisdom and spirituality will be enveloped by the spiritual darkness of their own depraved minds and hardened hearts. We see this in Romans 1. In other words, those who try to find life in anyone or anything other than God himself will only end up finding misery and death instead. The only other place in the Bible where the earth, the sea, the rivers, the sun, the moon, the stars, the day, and the night are all mentioned together. You know where it's at? Genesis 1, in the beginning, when God created all things, right? There God is shown through these things to be the sovereign creator of everything. Here, the undoing of these things reveals God to be the sovereign judge of all things. And these judgments are meant to be a painful reminder that people worship the creation rather than the creator. And as long as they do that, they're going to be left longing miserably for something else because this world and the things in it can never satisfy the soul. You can look at all of our songs that we sing here and we'll never find a line that, that talks about our souls being satisfied by anything other than Jesus. We're about to see that the misery only intensifies then for those who continue in rebellion against God. And this is where we'll pick up chapter 8, verse 13, and we're going to read through large chunks this morning, okay? We're going to read through uh, verse 12 of chapter 9. I looked and I heard an eagle flying overhead, crying out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth because of the remaining trumpet blast that the three angels are about to sound. The fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. The key for the shaft to the abyss was given to him. He opened the shaft to the abyss and smoke came out of the shaft like smoke from a great furnace so that the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from the shaft. Then locusts came out of the smoke onto the earth and power was given to them like the power that scorpions have on the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree but only those who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. They were not permitted to kill them, but were, but were to torment them for five months. Their torment is like the torment caused by scorpion when it stings someone. 
In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. Something like, a, like golden crowns was on their heads. Their faces were like human faces. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had chests like iron breastplates. The sound of their wings was like the sound of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. And they had tails with stingers like scorpions so that with their tails they had the power, the power to harm people for five months. They had as their king the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and, his Greek, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. The first woe has passed. There are still two more woes to come after this. Now, the locust imagery that John uses here echoes the plague of locusts from uh, the exodus in, uh, in, in Egypt, Exodus chapter 10. And it also borrows from two chapters, uh, language from, from two chapters in the book of Joel. Okay, so I would encourage you to go read Exodus chapter 10 and go read Joel 1 and 2 uh, again this week. And that might be beneficial for you to read in, and to help keep this in its context. Here the misery of dissatisfaction with the physical world is compounded by torment from the spiritual world. In the Old Testament, locusts were always destructive, whether they were literal locusts or used as a metaphor to describe human armies. And they're, here, they're neither literal nor do they represent human armies. Look at where they come up out of. From the abyss. The Old Testament refers to it as the pit, Sheol. Verse 1 tells us that the, that the star fell from heaven, uh, that fell from heaven to earth was given the keys to the abyss. The stars already, we've been told in, in Revelation 1, refer to angels, right? Jesus says, I saw uh, Satan fall like lightning from heaven in Luke chapter 10. He was given the key to the abyss. Remember back in chapter one, Jesus said that he holds the keys to death and Hades. These locusts are, are demons. They're demonic forces. Their king is the destroyer himself. That's what Abaddon means in Hebrew. That's what Apollyon means in Greek. Jesus in John chapter 10 says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, right? The imagery here is shocking. It's, and John just piles these, these descriptions up, these hideous descriptions to emphasize the terrifying nature of this demonic oppression, these demonic forces. But notice that they don't have free reign. Did you notice that? Satan had to get the key from Jesus in order to let them out. The power isn't theirs. It's given to them. They can't harm the vegetation, which is what literal locusts do. These locusts are hungry for people, and yet they can't kill anyone, but they are permitted to torment them for a limited time. But who exactly are they permitted to torment? Well, verse 4 tells us, those people who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. Verse 13 of chapter 8 pronounced woes on those uh, who live on the earth. That phrase throughout the book of Revelation is used exclusively to refer to unbelievers. Those who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads. John talked about what it means to be sealed in Christ last week. We're talking about unbelievers here. Anyone who has not been sealed by God through faith in Christ and the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.13, is subject to torment by unholy spirits. 
These demons use fear and guilt and condemnation, regret and shame and despair to torment their victims who are already enslaved to sin. They deceive, these demons deceive and they, they tempt to make sinful things look holy and holy things look sinful. We're told elsewhere in the New Testament that Satan and his angels are, are uh, 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 disguised as angels of light, right? They entice and they seduce, but like Proverbs tells us, in the end they sting like a scorpion. They can only torment for a limited period of time. But listen, the pain that they inflict is so unbearable that it not only causes people to want to die, but it also makes people terrified of death itself. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, then you need to know that these demons have no power over you. We're not talking about the sealed of God here. We're talking about those who are not sealed. Why, why do you not have any reason to fear? Well, look at what their weapons are. Condemnation. What are we told in Romans 8? There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? Jesus has already freed you from slavery to sin. You don't have to have guilt and shame anymore. Romans 10 tells us everyone who calls on him will not be put to shame. You've been sealed by his Holy Spirit and in the power of his Holy Spirit, we're told that we can resist the devil and what will happen? He'll flee. He will flee from us. We do that not on our own strength. We do that in the strength that's been provided to us by Christ himself in his spirit who lives in us. But for those who have not been sealed, this torment only escalates with the sixth trumpet. Look at verses 13 through 19. The sixth angel blew his trumpet from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. I heard a voice saying, say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of the human race. The number of mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. This is how I saw the horses and the riders in, their, in the vision. They had breastplates that were fiery red, hyacinth blue and sulfur yellow. The heads of the, hor- of the horses were like heads of lions and from their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of the human race was killed by these three plagues, by fire, the fire, the, the smoke, and the sulfur that came from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails because their tails, which resemble snakes, have heads that inflict injury. We need to notice that these four angels are bound. In the book of Revelation, the holy angels, the angels that are good, are never bound. They're never released from something. They're commissioned to something. They're sent out. These are more fallen angels, more demons, and they have a massive army. In the Greek, that 200 million that we, that we read here is literally twice 10,000s of 10,000s. It's a symbolic way of saying that there were too many to count. And they're under God's sovereign control, just like the other demons. They don't go out on their own. They have to be released. They're able to kill, but the power to do so is still limited. John says their power is in their mouths and in their tails, which resemble snakes. Where have we heard snakes before? Remember when we went through Genesis? The serpent, right? 
Like their serpent king, the devil, they spew lies and deception from their mouths. And the biggest way they do this is through false teachers who are under their demonic influence. See, we're getting heaven's perspective here on false teaching. And it's not something to be nonchalant about. It's demonic and it's deadly. It brings people to the grave. That's why Jesus said that uh, I have this against you to the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira. You know what he had against them? They were tolerating false teaching. Some people in the church of Pergamum were holding to the false teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. You remember what Jesus said to the Ephesian church? He said, you don't hold to the Nicolaitans, and that's good because I hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. He told the, those people in Pergamum to repent or he would come fight against them with the sword of his mouth. These demons are spewing out fire and sulfur and smoke. Jesus is coming with the sword. They're spewing lies. He's coming with the truth. Some people in the church in Thyatira were tolerating the false teachings of Jezebel. They too were told to repent or he would come and strike them dead. You see the tie-in here? This is why this is so deadly. This is false teaching is demonic and deadly because it deceives people into believing that they can find life and satisfaction in the very things that will actually bring them to ruin. We should hate it just as much as Jesus does. And that's why Jesus takes it so seriously. That's why it has no place in his church. And that's why we need to be a church that preaches the truth because the truth leads to life. This is why Jesus calls his people to repentance when they don't take the false teaching as seriously as he does. Are you listening to somebody that's telling you lies? Hear Jesus' words and repent of that. That takes you no place good. But those who aren't sealed by God, they don't see their need to repent. Look at chapter, or uh, verses 20 and 21, chapter 9. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze, stone and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Twice we're told here that people did not repent. Even after all of that misery, even after all of that torment, they did not repent. Idolatry and immorality aren't seen as things to turn away from by those who have turned away from God. They see the misery and death that these things cause in the world around them, but just like Pharaoh in Egypt, their hearts are too hardened to realize that these things are killing them too. Listen, if you're not a follower of Christ, I beg you, do not hit the snooze button on this alarm. Don't ignore the misery that you feel. There's a reason for it. It's because you'll never find life in the things that you're chasing after. Life is only ever found in Jesus Christ himself. A life lived apart from God only leads to judgment from God. The enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus has come so that we can have life and have it in abundance. 
why would you want something else? So today, if you, hear your, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart like these people. Don't harden your heart like Pharaoh. True life, true freedom, true satisfaction, true rest, true love, true peace, true hope. Everything that you might be chasing after in this world and not finding, all of it's found in Christ. That's it. Only him. So repent. Turn away from your sin and the things that you have been relying on and turn to Jesus in faith. That's what repentance is. It's turning around. It's going the other way. It's running, fleeing from the things that are trying to kill you and running to the one who gives you life. Confess your need for his forgiveness and ask him to forgive you. And you know what? That's exactly what he'll do. He'll never say no. He's promised not to turn away anyone who comes to him. He said that in John's gospel. In these first six trumpets, we've seen that the pain of God's judgments is not enough to turn stubborn hearts into, repentance, into repentant hearts. They need something more. And that leads us then to the interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets where John is given a vision of the mission of Christ's church. We're going to look at the first seven verses of chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like pillars of fire. We should, this is, should be familiar language to us. And he held a little scroll opened in his hand. He put his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. He cried out, the seven thunders when he cried out, the seven thunders raised their voices, and when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. Then the angel that I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore by the one who lives forever and ever who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it. And he said, there will be no longer be a delay. But in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants, the prophets. John mentions an angel here, but how does he describe this angel? In language that we've seen already in Revelation and will only ever see in Revelation that refers to God or Christ himself. We've heard about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. John is, is calling this person an angel, but don't we know that Jesus, and, and, and remember that in Greek, this can mean messenger. Don't we know from John's gospel that Jesus is both the true messenger and the true message. He's the living word, right? He's talking about Jesus here. And he's seeing Jesus standing on the land and the sea. What's that imagery about? All throughout the Bible, anytime somebody puts something under their foot, it means they have authority over it. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, right? He's looking at the risen and exalted Christ yet again. Isn't it amazing how many times Jesus shows up in Revelation just as risen and exalted and full, full glory, full glory. Seven thunders are most likely another set of seven judgments like the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. But God tells John not to write down what he heard from the seven thunders. And we're not given a reason why. And we're like, man, I want to know why, right? 
It's annoying, isn't it? I don't think we, maybe I shouldn't say that I'm annoyed with God. But, but it's, it's like, what, what is this about? Why, why does he tease us this way? We're not given a reason why. But you know what? Part of makes God, God, is the fact that he knows everything and we don't. Right? So what does he make known here? Interestingly enough, when God gave Daniel the visions of the coming Messiah back in Daniel chapter 11 and 12, he told Daniel to seal up the words and keep them secret until the time of the end. In Daniel 2, the visions of what would happen in the last days were repeatedly called a mystery. God told Daniel that the time was still yet to come, but here Jesus tells John, hey, that time is now. It's now. Because Jesus has just unsealed the scroll. At the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants, the prophets. That word announced here in the Greek literally means preached the gospel. As God preached the gospel to the prophets, both old and new Testament prophets were told uh, in the New Testament. Paul, in uh, Colossians 1, the apostle Paul calls the gospel the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. This mystery will be complete when the last trumpet sounds because as we'll see in a minute, that trumpet signals the end of human history. But that mystery that speaks both of judgment and salvation has been revealed already through the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of King Jesus. It's already started. It's already begun. Let's keep reading verses 8 through 11. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It'll be bitter in your stomach, but it, it'll be sweet as honey in your mouth. And then I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. The scroll is the same one that Jesus took and opened its seven seals. He's, he's holding it in his hand, and now he's giving it to uh, John. The scroll contains God's plans for the judgment and salvation of mankind, plans that he established before the foundation of the world, plans that he revealed through his prophets, plans that he fulfilled through his son. The voice from heaven tells John to eat the scroll, which sounds a little weird until we understand that the prophet Ezekiel had a vision where he was also told to do the same thing, to eat a scroll. And Jeremiah spoke of eating God's words and they became a, a, a delight to him and a joy to his heart. The psalmist says in, in Psalm 119, 103, how sweet your word is to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. But if you know anything about Ezekiel and Jeremiah, both of those prophets were commissioned to prophesy to hard-hearted and rebellious people. And here John tastes the bitterness of that same commission. The good news of the gospel is only sweet to the taste to those who can taste the bitterness of their own sin. The, the good news of the gospel is only sweet to those who can taste the bitterness of their own sin 
and rebellion against God. But the gospel is bitter to those who are hardened against God because it speaks of God's judgment against sin and sinners, which means it speaks of God's judgment against them. And those who've been commissioned to proclaim this gospel with a, uh, with a, uh, to a hardened world will experience the bitterness of suffering and persecution from a world that's bitter toward God. It's a bittersweet message. It's a bittersweet message. Look at the first four verses in chapter 11. And then I was given a measuring reed like a rod with these words, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there, but exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it's given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1260 days dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. In the Old Testament, measuring is often a metaphor for protection and or judgment. This temple imagery is another depiction of the separation between those who've been sealed by God, protected by God, and those who have not. But it also shows that while God's people are protected from his righteous wrath and from spiritual harm, it doesn't mean that we won't suffer the sinful wrath of a hard-hearted world. We've already been told back in chapter 1 that the lampstands represent the church, and here we're told that the two witnesses are the two lampstands and the two olive trees that stand before the Lord of the earth. It's a picture of the church empowered by the Holy Spirit and it draws from Zechariah chapter four. That might be helpful for you to go and read this week. In, the, in that chapter, in Ze- <coughs> excuse me, in Zechariah, a lampstand and two olive trees are used in a vision to represent Israel being empowered by the Holy Spirit to rebuild the temple. And we know from Ephesians 2, from 1 Peter 2, just a couple places in the New Testament of many where the church is referred to as the new temple. Remember in John's gospel when we went through in chapter 2, I think it's chapter 2, Jesus called himself the temple. And the church is the body of Christ. If Christ is the temple and we're his body, what does that make us? The temple. He's not talking about a literal temple here. This is an image of the church. So the picture here in Revelation 11 is of the church as a faithful, prophetic witness to the gospel in the midst of persecution. It's depicted as two witnesses because in John's day, two witnesses were required to establish the credibility of a testimony. And the two witnesses are dressed in sackcloth to emphasize the grief of witnessing to a hard-hearted world that rejects the truth and persecutes those who testify to it. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone and they just reject it outright? Maybe it's a friend or a family member. Doesn't that grieve you? That's the picture here. You're wearing sackcloth, even as you've been commissioned to proclaim this. But you know what? There is power in this testimony that we've been given Look at verses 5 through 14. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. That sounds like Ezekiel, right? They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike uh, strike the earth with every plague wherever they want. That sounds like Moses. 
When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. We're going to get to the beast in chapter 13. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is <coughs> excuse me, called Sodom and Egypt, and also where their Lord was crucified. And some of the people, tribes, nations, and, or languages and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them and then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place and a tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Take note, the third woe is coming soon. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on here, but again, we're not going to be able to have time to dig in all the, to all the details. We need to step back far enough to see the bigger picture of what's going on in this mosaic. 42 months equals 1,260 days, which equals three and a half years. Remember that numbers in Revelation are used symbolically more than they're used literally. The book of Daniel uses these same numbers in this way. It talks about times, or time, times, and half a time, right? These numbers refer to this time of suffering and testing that God's people will experience as they faithfully proclaim God's gospel in the world between the time of Jesus' resurrection and the time of his return. We've already established in, in other places in Revelation that, that the things that were far off for Daniel, Jesus tells John they're right now. How long have God's people been proclaiming this gospel since Jesus walked out of the grave, right? It's been there in stages up to that, but it's been there in its fullness since he rose from the tomb and he ascended into heaven and he commissioned his disciples saying, you'll be my witnesses, right? And when will they stop proclaiming this gospel? When Jesus returns. There's your time frame, right? This whole picture here shows us how the church's earthly ministry is a reflection of Christ's earthly ministry that just so happened to also last about three and a half years, by the way. The reality that's being communicated here is that the church will suffer like Jesus suffered as we testify to the truth of the gospel, like Jesus testified to the truth of the gospel. But we will also be raised like Jesus was raised and vindicated like Jesus was vindicated by God the Father. This had to be a timely reminder for those seven churches that were reading this letter from John as they faced intensifying persecution under Rome and Emperor Domitian. And it's a timely reminder to every church in every age. Don't you feel some pressure coming on us in these days? In chapter nine, the demons had fire and smoke and sulfur coming from their mouths, and that represented the false teaching. Here the two witnesses have fire coming from their mouths, and that fire is the truth of God's word that brings judgment on those who reject it. Jeremiah 5, 14, God says this, Therefore this is what the Lord God of armies says, 
because you have spoken this word out of your mouth, right? I'm going to make my words become fire in your mouth. And these people are the wood, these people who reject me, and it, the fire, will consume them. Same language right here. It's the prophetic word of God pronouncing judgment on those who reject it. Verse 10 shows us that it's not just demons that torment unbelievers. The witness of the church has the same effect because the truth of the gospel reveals judgment and wrath against all who reject Christ. Verse 13 speaks of a violent earthquake that brings the great city crumbling to the ground. The same thing happened that day in Jericho when the seven priests blew the seven trumpets uh, on the seventh day, right? God's enemies were defeated when the city crumbled and his people were ushered into the promised land to take possession of it. Last week, we saw a violent earthquake when the sixth seal was open and it signaled the end of the world and the great day of wrath from the Lord. And then we got another view with the seventh seal of the same day of wrath, right? In that account, with the seals there in in, uh, the sixth seal, the unbelievers in the world found themselves unable to hide from the reality that God is really God and they have really rejected him. They're crying out to the mountains and the caves to fall on us, right? Same thing seems to be happening here in verse 13. It's possible that this is referring to a a large uh, 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 moment of repentance, but there's nowhere else in Revelation where there is a description of a large number of unbelievers being converted right before Christ's return. It seems more likely that this is mirroring what we saw in the sixth seal. Survivors are terrified and they give glory to God not because they've come to their senses and repented, but because they've come to realize that the God that they have rejected is the righteous and holy judge of all the earth. Remember Philippians 2, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and the Father. Not every tongue and every knee will confess and bow because they want to. Every tongue will because they have to. Because the reality of who God is will be made known among the whole world and every mouth will confess that this is true. If you're an unbeliever, this is why it's so important that you don't hit the snooze button on these alarms. These trumpets are warning you that right now is the time to repent. Right now is the time to repent because the day is coming when time will run out. And listen, you will not be able to turn the clock back when that day comes. But you need to know that this gospel message that we proclaim not only is a message of judgment, but is also a message of salvation. Jesus came to be our substitute. He suffered torment and persecution at the hands of sinful people while he lived in perfect obedience to God the Father, wasn't swayed one bit by the temptations that he faced. He didn't deserve the wrath of God. We did, right? But Jesus took that wrath upon himself as he hung on the cross in the place of sinners so that we then could be declared righteous by God and saved from death through the forgiveness of our sins. At the cross, God proved himself to be both just and the justifier of sinners. He punished Jesus in our place. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day to prove his righteousness, to be vindicated 
and to give eternal life to all who trust in him. So why, listen, why not give glory to Jesus now by surrendering your heart and your whole life to this king of grace? What could possibly give you more than Jesus can? You don't need to live in spiritual torment any longer. You don't need to live in the misery of dissatisfaction, chasing one thing after the other. The Bible tells us that Jesus himself is our peace. So why not confess your sin and your need for him and entrust yourself to him? I want to speak to the church for a moment. This is why, right here, what we just read, this is why we cannot hit the snooze button on our mission. We cannot ignore what what Christ has sent us out to do. We can't shy away from proclaiming this gospel message when things get difficult and painful, when it comes at great cost to us, even, yes, if and when it costs us our very lives. We were once hard-hearted. We were once hostile toward God. We once rejected Christ, but this is what his grace does. He opens our eyes. God, in his grace, he brought this gospel message to you and me, and he softened our hardened hearts and enabled us to see our need for the one that we were resisting all along He helped us see that we were running to death and we needed life in Christ. And now he's commissioned us to proclaim this gospel message to a hard-hearted world so that he can rescue more people. That's why we're still here. That's why we don't just get taken up to heaven with Jesus when we're saved. We've been commissioned as prophets, those who proclaim the judgment of God in this time and call people to repentance so that they can have life with him forever. God is still rescuing people from darkness and the dominion of darkness and he's bringing them into the kingdom of the son that he loves. So let's, let's give them that message of hope before it's too late. Let's finish up with the seventh trumpet and the majesty of Christ's kingdom. Verse 15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven. Did you notice that like everything is just loud? When it comes to the glory of God and the heavenly picture, it's not subtle. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. That's a line in the hallelujah chorus, Handel's Messiah. Just listen, hear that singing right now. The, the 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who, was, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry. Psalm 2, they raged, right? But your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, and to those who fear your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. And then the temple of God in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunders, an earthquake, 
and severe hail. The seventh trumpet signals the end of the battle and a call to worship. It does both here. Lightning and thunder and earthquake and hail all signal the end of the world. We've seen these already once. We'll see them multiple times in Revelation. Notice in verse 17 that the worshipers called God the one who was and who is. But do you know what was missing? The one who is to come. Why? It's because the vision shows us what happens when Christ has come. The nations that raged against him will be judged in the fullness of God's wrath, and he will destroy the destroyers, Abaddon, Apollyon, and all of his dominion. Jesus came to destroy the one who holds the power over death and keeps people in fear of it. Christ will reward all those who put their trust in him. The Ark of the Covenant followed the trumpets into Jericho as they announced God's judgment and victory. The ark is the representation of God's presence in the Old Testament. When it was in the temple, it was hidden behind a curtain. Here it says the temple's been opened. The curtain's gone. And the ark is in plain sight of the people. We're gonna see in Revelation 21, God himself coming and dwelling with his people. This is speaking of God's presence here with his people. He's delivered them into the promised land and he's come to dwell amongst them forever. You see the right now judgments of, God's, of God trumpet his victory over his enemies and his vindication of his people. And they do that because they ultimately lead to this trumpet, this final judgment of God. And these trumpets are alarms that none of us can ignore. You can't snooze these. If you're an unbeliever, don't hit the snooze button on your misery. Turn to Jesus and find peace. If you're a follower of Christ, don't hit the snooze button on your mission. We need to offer this peace to those in misery, even if it means that we suffer as a result. Because you know what? Our suffering has a time stamp on it. It's coming to an end. And we can do this in confidence because we know that God himself will not hit the snooze button on his kingdom. It's already here in part, and our King Jesus is bringing it in full, and it will be glorious, glorious, majestic. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you for your incredible grace to us in Jesus, and we pray, Lord, that you would Help us as a church to be uh, zealous to stay on the mission that you've sent us out in. We pray that you would help us to proclaim both your judgment and your salvation because both things are true. And that we would point people to Jesus as the Savior to rescue people from wrath and bring them in his righteousness to eternal life. We pray, Lord, this morning that anyone in here who's heard this message and is tempted to resist it yet again, that your spirit would break into their hearts. Give them a softened heart to receive this message in faith, not just as a message, but to receive Christ himself and be saved, that they can join in this chorus at the end of days, that this kingdom of our Lord has become, or the kingdom of this earth has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. And the beauty is that we will reign with you. 
We love you so much, and we thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.